Welcome to the CEC Report. It's the 13th of July. I'm Robert Barwick, and I'm joined today by CEC Leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Robbie. Good to be back. Good to have you back. In this week's CEC Report, the eerie precedent for an Australian housing banking crash and the chemical weapons attack story that the media isn't reporting. First, let's hear from our CEC candidate for the Perth by-election, Barry Mason. Hi, Barry Mason, the uh, candidate for the upcoming by-election on the 28th of July for the federal seat of Perth. What we're campaigning on is breaking up the banks. With their huge derivative exposure, now exceeding $40 trillion, uh, it's a fight that we need to win and we need to break up these banks now. And then you've got corporate global debt is ready to blow up as well. So come join the fight. Come join us in Perth. Find out how you can help us to help yourself. And this campaign is also national as well. So don't forget, July the 28th, vote one for Barry Mason, CEC Australia. Thanks, Barry. So, first story, the eerie precedent for an Australian housing banking crash. And Craig, this week, the alert service, the Australian alert service, which people should call in and get a copy of if you haven't had one before. We have an article in here, very provocative for most Australians. Are Australia's big four banks effectively bankrupt? And we go through the parameters that everyone has to look at the whole picture, mm. and we conclude, um, right now, Australia's banks are dead men walking, effectively bankrupt. It, can, it hinges on whether there's a property bubble or not. Yeah, that's right. Right? And if you don't believe there's a property bubble, you're going to think everything's fine. If you do accept there's a bubble, well, by definition, it's going to burst. And our banks, are all, they're so exposed to it, they're the most exposed in the world, um, they're, going to be, they're going to be goners. Now, that's what we say. There's an alternative version view of this, right? And it comes from the government. I want to take issue with a certain phrase that the government uses. When we first heard it in January when we were mobilising against the APRA bill to give APRA bail-in powers. Mm -hmm. And the government claimed that, oh, what you, the scenario you're talking about will never happen because our banks are unquestionably strong. Don't right? go there. Don't question it. What's don't that word there. mean? Unquestionably. It means don't question their strength. You can't question this, right? That's, that's what unquestionably means. Well, so. the, regulars the regulators don't either, Robbie. That's the no, problem. That's right. There's exactly. no testing. Now, they say they do these stress tests, but these stress tests, as we'll see, are a joke. Exactly. Well, and there's a specific measure they base this claim on, that the banks have 14.5% capital, yep. right? That's 14.5% of their assets is capital, and that's a buffer that they can absorb that much in losses and still be okay. So this, is, this comes from the government, comes from the RBA, comes from APRA, comes from the banks, it comes from but the real estate is that agents. Not, that's risk-weighted capital, Robbie. So yes, but I, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute, oh, okay, Craig. Fine, that's yeah. in the fine, it, we want people to understand the fine detail. But before we do, I want to play a clip. And we're going to use a few clips today. Um, because the precedent, I say there's a precedent for what Australia is in right now, which is Ireland. Right? And that's why I call it the eerie um, precedent. And I want, if pe I want people to look at this clip from Irish TV channel RTE in 2007, which was a year before the, the GFC, a year before the crash. And there was a big crash in Ireland. 
But I want when you watch the clip, if you're if you're an Australian who follows the news, who, who have an interest in this subject, etc., a lot of this will jump out at you. Take note of the similarities between Ireland then and Australia now, and including the similarity of the official denials. So let's just watch this news story from Ireland in 2007. Well, for some very lucky people out there, the price of property no longer matters. For the rest of us, it matters a great deal. And yet, when we go looking for sound advice about our most valuable asset, we get divided opinion. The experts agree the rise in house prices has slowed, if not stopped. But when they offer predictions about the property market, some tell you soft landing and others say crash landing. Certainly the pessimists are finding their voice, for example, on last night's Future Shock program on RTE, which pointed to signs of an impending property slump. We'll be hearing both sides of this critical debate in a few minutes, but first, here's Una Smith. With no more growth in the housing market, the doomsaying about a crash is getting louder. It could start tomorrow, or it could take another two or three years before that starts, but it's got to happen sometime. It is something outside happening could puncture it here, and there would be very little you could do to prevent it. So what are the reasons given for a likely crash? The lack of affordability has meant a drop in first-time buyers, one of the fundamentals underpinning real value in the market. Whilst in 2001, 63% of new homes were bought by first-time buyers. It's now at 33%. Furthermore, only one-third of properties are now being sold at auction, as opposed to 90% in the boom years. Others say this could simply be the start of our soft landing, with buyers holding back, hoping for the reform of stamp duty. I'm also effectively abolishing a stamp duty as we know it by simplifying the code here, by introducing three bands, not 5 and 9%. The second predictor of a crash is that rents have not risen with house prices, suggesting that the market is a bubble and not driven by demand. For example, for an interest-only mortgage on a €1 million Euro house, the mortgage is 4000 a month, but the rent will only be half that. So if investors pull out suddenly and they make up 40% of our market, a crash is more likely. In contrast, the OECD says a soft landing is the most likely prospect. And the central bank says that house prices are not out of line with market fundamentals. The third predictor of a crash is our economy's over-reliance on construction, which has slowed by 10%. It will accelerate a downturn if jobs go and workers leave. How long we have the job here and, and good conditions, we stay here. I tell you, if there start to be a problem with the job here from uh, all foreigners, just they're just going back to countries, that's it. Others argue that our economy is strong. It rose by over 6% last year and predict that it'll rise by at least 4% per year until the end of the decade, requiring over 50,000 migrant workers per year, all who will need a roof over their head. A final predictor of the crash comes from international experience. In roughly 40 cases, the bigger the boom, the more likely the bust. Given that our boom was so dramatic, with prices increasing by 270% in 10 years, our prices could fall between 40 and 60% in 9 years. The most likely trigger is the devaluing dollar, which is affecting our exports and competitiveness and could lead to multinationals pulling out.
Against this, other economists say housing demand is still high for the foreseeable future as the economy grows and the population rises. That was Una Smith reporting. We have two economists in the studio with me with very different views. Uh, Professor Morgan Kelly from UCD and Jim Power of Friends First. Morgan Kelly, you're on the pessimistic side of this equation. You've written that uh, the value of the Irish housing market could be halved by an approaching slump. That's not a guess, I'm assuming. No. What happened was, late last year, I got tired of listening to the various paid cheerleaders for the property sector saying that we're going to have a soft landing. So what I did was I looked at all the different economies around that have had property booms and all of them, without exception, have had very big property busts immediately afterwards. You can predict the size of the bust from the boom. It's just like a Roadrunner film. Roadrunner goes into thin air. He doesn't have any soft landing. He falls straight down. Typically, you lose about 70% of what you've gained in the boom in the subsequent bust. For Ireland, that means a fall of somewhere in the region of 50%. You talk about the cheerleaders, they call you a doomsayer. They say the nature of the property business is that if you say it long enough, and people like you say there will be this bust, it's going to happen. It's going to happen whether we say it or not. We've had several years now, the property industry has been talking it up, saying great, buy houses, there's no risk of a fall. You have people now, they're mortgaging their lives away, their parents' life savings are going into these houses. It's been talked up, and now it's running out of steam. It's going to fall, whether Jim, we talk about it or not. Jim Power, if you look at history books, Morgan Kelly says, you'll see there's no such thing as a soft landing. Uh, a boom will always end in a bust. Now, I suppose the first thing I should say is that I'm not a, pair ch a paid cheerleader for any property interest, okay? Um, I have analysed the Irish property market very closely over the last 10 years, and you'd have to say the evolution of prices over that period reflects the fact that there's been a dramatic transformation of this economy. You know, we're talking about a doubling of employment in 10 years from just over a million to over 2 million people at the moment. We've had strong inward migration in recent years. That's creating a demand directly or indirectly via the rental market. We've had a one-off step adjustment to interest rates when we joined the single European currency. So there's a whole, and, and I suppose more fundamentally, the Irish economy in the last decade has been utterly transformed. And I apologise uh, for the, the blurriness of that clip, but we're, we're at the mercy of YouTube. But it's good. YouTube's a good resource. I'm glad it's up there. Um, but did you notice the similarities? I'll point them out. Falling first-time buyers. That's also true in Australia. Falling auction rates. Sydney's official clearance rate now, Craig, is down around 50%, where it used to be up around 80%, right? Um, an over-reliance on construction. Construction is the second biggest sector of the Australian economy, right? Which, we know, which we know in our country has been building all these enormous numbers of apartments. Apartments, etc., yeah, right? Yeah. And over-reliance on that, right? Yes. And also the similar official denials, including the claim I was, that jumped out at me that, oh, no, what's happened here is driven by high immigration, right? And that's what most Australians, especially if you live in Sydney or Melbourne, oh, it's the immigration rates, people coming in, that's what's driving up prices. That, that so much similarities, it's eerie. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about what happened next in Ireland. Welcome back to the CEC Report, where we're discussing the eerie precedent for an Australian housing banking crash. And Craig, we're talking about Ireland, what yeah. happened in Ireland in 2007-2008. So we saw before the break this denial that there could be something wrong, but one guy, this Professor Morgan Kelly, was warning, no, no, there's big trouble coming. So what happened? September 2008, you had a global credit crunch when Lehman Brothers went bankrupt in New York. 
right? And it, banks around the world stopped lending to each other. Now, the Irish banks were claimed they were well capitalised, like our banks claim, but they suffered a liquidity squeeze. So um, the Irish government, accepting that they were unquestionably strong, gave them, they, they basically guaranteed the banks because they thought, oh, it's just a short-term liquidity squeeze, we just have to guarantee them enough so they can have the liquidity to get past that and everything will be fine. Yeah. Um, the night they did that, there was a debate on Irish television, 30th of September 2008, on the wisdom of this decision. And the same professor, Morgan Kelly, was on there who had warned about the housing crisis a year earlier. And this is what ensued. I want people to watch this debate. And what you're going to see, take note of how this top newspaper editor, his name's Brendan Keenan, he insists the banks have enough capital, they just need liquidity. We're in the eye of the storm, Brendan Keenan. First of all, your reaction, because we can all get very blasé about this, to this extraordinary guarantee from our government. Well, I mean, nothing like this has ever been seen before, but arguably nothing has ever been seen before has been happening in the world over the last several weeks and, and months. Um, it wasn't entirely what I had expected. I'd expected some version of what's being on in Europe, a kind of mixture of governments putting money in, other banks putting money in. But I think the situation here was different. Um, none of the banks, as I understand it, are particularly looking to be rescued. What they said was, look, our deposits are fleeing the country and we cannot access funds. Uh, and if that is the problem, and that is the big if that is yet to be answered, then this looks on the face of it about the best way of dealing with it. Because if the Irish banks aren't insolvent, then it's not money we need, it's confidence. And that debate goes to the whole heart of the international crisis. There's a huge argument in America on precisely this point. Do the American banks need rescued, as proposed by Poulsen? Or in fact, do you just need something to ungum the system and then it'll look after itself? So for the moment, you support what the government's done? <laughs> <laughs> Look, we won't know how. Question. We won't know how this works until okay. we see if it works. Morgan Kelly, professor of economics at UCD, what's your reaction to My this guarantee? My reaction is very negative. Initially, when Lenin announced the hundred thousand deposit guarantee, I was very optimistic. Had we not had that, we would have had queues outside banks yesterday. However, what we need to ask ourselves: the problem here, as Brendan said, is foreign banks are afraid to lend to Irish banks. They're not afraid to lend to banks in other parts of Europe. We need to ask ourselves what's going on here. The underlying reason is that Irish banks have made very big loans to developers and above all to builders. They're losing money on these. They have a lot of bad debts. They're covering them up, but international institutions know they're there. That's why they've stopped borrowing. But what would the alternative be, Morgan Kelly? Like, if they hadn't done this today, I suppose they could have done a form of nationalisation. Are you saying they shouldn't do anything? No. They need to do what has been done everywhere else. It's that as individual banks run into problems, the government goes in and, first of all, sees if they need to survive. A lot of banks in the US have just been let go. And we need, obviously, to keep our retail banks going. There are some non-retail banks that could have been let go. Nobody would have missed them. But what you need is for government to come in, offer new capital to banks in return for a share of ownership and recapitalize them. That is a real big problem here. Irish banks have made big losses on their loans. They're short of capital. Well, we but don't quite know if that is the real problem. The banks insist that they don't need capital from the government. They don't want capital from the government. They can trade their way through this if they can access the normal funding. And that's what all the discussions have been for the last three or four weeks. 
So, and Craig, these things just jump out at me, right? They're, they're the, the, the same, exactly the same mentality. When your followers in Australia hear all these denials, exactly the same mentality. What happened a few weeks after this decision, just weeks, the housing market crashed, the Irish banks went bankrupt, but because the government had guaranteed them, the government had to bail them out. That bankrupted the Irish government. They had to get a bailout themselves from the European Union. And when they did, the European Union said, well, you've got to have all this crushing austerity on the people to pay it back, right? Yep. Famous last words, because they accepted the BS, mind my French, from the banks. Now, Australia could be at the same point now, and this is very important, because this has just happened. APRA, um, and I'm saying the same point as when that debate happened, right? People should be, this could be happening as we speak. And here's a sign of it. APRA has just announced the results of stress tests of the banks. These stress tests assumed the following. One, a China downturn and collapse in demand for our resources. Two, downgrading of Australia's sovereign debt rating and banks rating, resulting in no more overseas borrowing. Three, a sell-off for the Australian dollar. A 4% drop in GDP. Unemployment doubling to 11% and a fall in house prices by 35%. And in response to that, the stress tests of those scenarios, APRA boss claimed, Wayne Boss Byers this week claimed that the banks would be fine. Have a look at what Martin North, a very astute analyst from Digital Finance Analytics, has said about that in his latest post on July 12. When is a test not a test? Today, when is a test not a test? Hello again, I'm Martin North from Digital Finance Analytics. Welcome to our latest post covering finance and property news with a distinctively Australian flavour. In APRA's Wayne Byers speech yesterday, the one in which he said an 8% growth in residential home lending was healthy, he also covered the stress testing processes with the banks and gave them a clean bill of health. So that's alright then. While 40 billion of losses were suggested in the bank's mortgage book, this was, he said, manageable. Today, LF Economics posted their own bank's testing analysis, putting APRA's stress test to the test. I'll put a link in the comment section below. And they applied the APRA stress parameters to the data from Westpac, which was revealed in the recent Royal Commission hearings. Using that data, they extrapolated losses to the banking system if scaled up to be $298 billion, a quantum larger than APRA's. Now, we ran our own scenarios using our core market model and using the same APRA worst case baseline. And we get a result much closer to the LF economic scenarios than the APRA outcomes. And in fact, we think the LF economics numbers may themselves be conservative. In addition, from APRA, we get no detail on their work and no individual bank level disclosure, unlike the US version. See our recent post on the US, testing, testing, one to $568 billion. So we do not find the APRA version very credible, which is a worry. Viewers should watch the whole of that Martin North segment. It's on YouTube. It's called Walk the World Channel. Look that up. Um, he's saying that his, by his calculation, it could be $310 billion in losses. That's wow. more than their capital. Yep. But I also say, call in again, get a copy of our publication this week to read our article on this. We'll take a break. Welcome back to the CEC Report. Craig, before we get into the final subject, 
What's your comment on what we've just watched in the last two segments? Robbie, we've been campaigning for Glass-Steagall for a long time now. This is what's required. Break up the banks, protect the commercial banking sector and, and get rid of the merchant investment bank. We need to protect them from this crash that and could look, be starting I was, now. I was interested in that Irish crash where the government went and bailed them out. We don't need to do that. We could have a national bank. The national bank could take over these banks if necessary, yep. right? But people have to think in terms of what is a national bank. And we've got all the material available for that on our website. People can understand what a national bank is. You'll know what the solution is. Yep. All right. Finally, the chemical weapons attack story that the media isn't reporting. And you got, we had to talk about this, Craig. The media this week, big, one of the big stories, there's lots of stories this week actually, but one of the big ones all over the media is a couple in the town of Amesbury, which is just mm. down the road from Salisbury in the UK, who turned out to be a couple of junkies, right, somehow came into contact with this Russian nerve agent, Novichok, and the lady has died and the man is in hospital. And then I think just this morning, actually, someone at a restaurant has got sick. Um, everyone's flipped out. Oh, this is, the, this is Russia's fault again, etc. I want to remind people, because, you know, this is a follow-on from what happened in April when that Soviet ex, ex-Russian spy and his daughter were supposedly poisoned by the Russians with this agent, even though it's a military strength agent, they didn't die. Um, at the time that happened, remember there was another chemical attack, mm. which Boris Johnson called the two chemical attacks, what happened in Salisbury's chemical attack, but what happened in Syria, Duma in Syria, there was a chemical weapons attack, right? And now on the basis of that attack, even though there was a lot of high-level scepticism from people like top military brass in the UK expressed it, even Se- Secretary of Defence Mattis in America couldn't hide his scepticism, right? But they rushed ahead and they bombed Syria yet again. Well, there's been an investigation by the official organisation, the Organisation for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, and they went and checked the site, right? Did all their testing. They have now produced their report. And I want to point, before I read this quote, I'm going to point out again, you're not getting this in the media this week. This happened this week, 6th of July. This has not been reported. Right, compared with what's this, this latest event in um, uh, Salisbury, Amesbury. So this is what the OPCW report from their investigation stated. Analysis of the prioritised samples submitted to the designated laboratories were received by the FFM team on 22 May 2018. No organophosphorus nerve agents or their degradation products were detected either in the environmental samples or in blood plasma samples from the alleged casualties. In other words, the attack they claim could not have happened. That's right. Right? Um, This is all aimed, Robbie, at marginalising and isolating President Putin from President Trump. This is a massive geopolitical fight. Trump's intention is to collaborate with Russia, to have Russia and the United States collaborating. But look, that would overturn the entire post-World War II geopolitical game. Trump's willing to do it, and this is freaking the hell out of the establishment. We've also got the BRICS countries, you know, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, going with huge economic development around China's win-win policy under Xi Jinping. So look, the point is that there's a lot at stake here for the British, for the Wall Street crowd, for the entire Western apparatus that's been... a promoting war for many, many years. And so this Trump is why and Putin it, are meeting on Monday. And the media's in the pockets of these guys yep. and they just they just lie. So they're not going to report this, no. but they're going to make it a big deal that Russia hurt these British they subjects. They will again. just lie. Yep. All right, well Craig, we've run out of time. Thanks, Thanks for Robbie. joining us. Yep. Thanks for tuning into this week's CEC report. And remember, support Barry's campaign and get a copy of the alert service.